Hebrews chapter 1. Continuing in the study of this most wonderful book, so theologically rich, this book, all the way through from beginning to end, and we've just begun to scratch the surface. We've been talking in the first three verses about the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And remember that the author of Hebrews is wanting to encourage these frightened believers who are threatened for their very lives. And so the author's strategy is to extol, to magnify, to lift up on high the person of Jesus so that it would be so far from their hearts and their minds that they might ever walk away from Jesus. So we've seen his strategy. We've been studying it verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Let's just read through until we get to our phrase for today, which is the last phrase in verse 3. So we'll start in verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to take that last phrase. He, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us this morning. And we ask that, Lord, you would allow us to feast on your word. We want to feast on the very person of Jesus Christ this morning. And we need to be built up spiritually. Lord, you know what our lives are like. You know what our weeks are like. You know sometimes we come in here so hungry and thirsty for you. And we thank you that you are faithful to satisfy. And then to, in the course of a service, get us beyond ourselves. It's so good how you do that, Lord. We come in here sometimes and it's all about us, but in the course of two hours, you, you wonderfully make it all about you. Do that now in the study of your word, Lord. We ask that our agendas would be quelled, they'd be pushed down, they'd be quieted. That our fears and concerns would only be viewed now through the lens of your glory and your sovereignty and your mercy and your power. And that everything that's happening in our lives would be submitted to the reality of who you are. And that you do a wonderful work in us according to your word. Holy Spirit, please anoint me to communicate your truth. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So it says here of Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we have here in view is something called the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension. To ascend means to go up. The ascension of Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, it's not something that I find we speak a lot about here in church. At least not as much as we speak about the cross and the resurrection. It seems that the cross and the resurrection are always in the forefront and so they should be. But sometimes it seems like we leave the ascension off the end of the story. But the story is not complete without the ascension. What is also interesting and Perhaps a reason why we don't mention it as often as the cross and the resurrection is that it's seldom mentioned in Scripture. It's there to be sure. But it's not spoken of in Scripture nearly as much as the cross or the resurrection. But as I said, it is there and the story is incomplete without it. And furthermore, the ascension of Jesus Christ has tremendous implications for the way that we live. For the way that we will live today and this afternoon and tomorrow and on and on and on until he comes. There are tremendous implications in this doctrine of the ascension. Now I want to deal first with just the phraseology as given to us in Hebrews 1.3. That he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we'll talk about the broader implications of the whole doctrine of the ascension. What does it mean that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high? Well, first of all, let's identify majesty. That shouldn't be difficult. We know that majesty here is referring to God. It's referring to the Godhead. Simply God. And he's referred to as majesty because he is. 
And it's weird when you try to put one descriptor to God, isn't it? Because he's so much more than any one word could say. Have you ever noticed that the Bible's kind of long? Because it's talking about God and there's so much to say about him. But he is described here as majesty, meaning ruling and reigning, regal and right, superior and sovereign. God is majesty. Now, it says that Jesus, after the ascension, was at the right hand, is at the right hand of majesty. Now, we understand that God is spirit, as Jesus said in John chapter 4. So we're not to think that the Godhead necessarily has a right hand and that Jesus in bodily form is right there. Rather, it's picturesque language, right hand. It speaks of throughout antiquity and throughout the Bible as the place of strength, the right hand, the place of authority, the right hand, and the place of honor. So what we're told is this, that Jesus, after he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead three days later, He ascended unto heaven 40 days after that. And he is there in a place of strength, in a place of authority, and in a place of honor. Lest there were any question as to the person of Jesus Christ and where he is. He is at a place of strength and honor and authority. Now, if you start to think about it, and some of you already have, it's kind of a strange concept. Because of the incarnation, you see, we understand, and we've already talked about at length, the fact that Jesus is the uncreated one. Amen? That's correct doctrine. Some of the cults say that he was created, but the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus is the uncreated one. We believe in the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is pre-existent. He has always been as a member of the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we talked about that whole trip a few weeks ago. But then at the virgin birth, we have what is called the incarnation, where deity takes on humanity. Jesus Christ draped himself in humanity to save fallen humanity, to save sinners like you and I. But what's interesting about the incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, is that that flesh never goes away. He doesn't at some point dispose of that body. He was resurrected from the dead, so he's now in a glorified body, which, by the way, is the basis for the argument that we will also have glorified bodies one day, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He's in a glorified body, but Jesus is still in a body. He didn't become a man for a while and then surrender that body and go back to the way that he always preexisted. It's interesting, isn't it? But scripture is very clear on that, that the incarnation is now permanent. He wasn't incarnate before, but he was at the virgin birth. And though that body is glorified and different, Jesus is bodily nonetheless, evidenced by the fact of what is said when he comes back. In Zechariah chapter 12, we have the second coming of the Lord. And in Zechariah 12, 10, it says that Israel will look upon him who was pierced. So not only does he still have a body that they can look upon, but he still bears the wounds for our sin. And then it says in Zechariah 13, the next chapter, it says that they will ask, where did you get these wounds? So there's proof in the Bible that he's still in bodily form, still bearing the wounds. And there's a reason we'll talk about that in a moment. But he's seated at the right hand. He bodily is at a place in heaven of honor and power and glory. You understand that? He bodily sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But what does it mean that he sat down? Now, this is really important. What does it mean that he sat down? Well, we need to think about the Old Testament economy. We need to think about the tabernacle and after that, the temple in the Old Testament. What's interesting is, if you're reading your Bible, you know that 
God is the one who gave Moses the design for the tabernacle. And in the design of the tabernacle and subsequently the temple where all the services for Israel were run and where the sacrifices were made, what is interesting is that there were no seats anywhere in the area where the priests were to do their work. There weren't any seats to be found. In this place, which is not the temple or the tabernacle, but a church, there's plenty of seats. And if the priest, you know, you guys want to sit down, well, there you are. You're sitting down right now. And so there is a sense that those who do the work of the Lord can now sit down. But in the Old Testament, there was no place by the design of God for those who serve the Lord to sit down in the midst of the work. The idea was that for the Old Testament priest, the work of sacrifice was never completed. It was never done. It was sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. There's a reason for that, and I want us to look at it as we gain more understanding in Hebrews chapter 10. Turn a few pages to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about the relation between the Old Testament things and what Jesus has done. And it says, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 10, for the law, speaking of the Old Testament law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they continually offer, continually offer, Make perfect those who draw near. We see already that there is, according to the scriptures, a deficiency in the Old Testament system. Though those sacrifices are made year in and year out continually, they can never perfect, make whole, make complete, make totally right the worshipers. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, here's the purpose of them, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We talked about this extensively in previous weeks. The blood of bulls bulls and goats made a covering for the people's sins, a temporary covering, but they never took away Because no animal could redeem humanity. Which is why when Jesus came, he did not come as an animal. He came as a man to redeem humanity. Which is why it's so wonderful when John the Baptist, baptizing there at the Jordan River, saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, look in verse 11. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10 says, And every priest stands daily ministering, offering time and time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice, who's he? Jesus. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now we see why in the Old Testament economy for the priests, there were no seats anywhere because their work was never done. Jesus comes along and does with the one sacrifice what all those previous sacrifices nor anything else could have ever done. Cleansed us completely from sin. And so now, because it is finished, tetelestai, tetelestai, because it is paid in full, Jesus said in John 19.30, because the job is done, the work is complete, when he ascended to the Father, He sat down. Just like we do. When we've been engaged in a big job or a big project and it's finished. And we finally, oh, we sit down to relax and to enjoy. To behold the work that was finished. It's done. 
You're done working. Sit down. That's how sure our salvation is. That is how complete the work of the cross is. Is that Jesus sat down after he said, it is finished. Now what's interesting is that very few of us take that to the bank. That it's finished. That he sat down. That it's completed. That our forgiveness is in full. And the enemy is so good at causing us to not take it to the bank. The enemy loves to get us in that place where we beat up on ourselves when we sin. Does anybody here sin more than they like to? More than they like to. Okay. Way more than they like to? Way more than they like to. And you know what the enemy does with that. He loves to bring us into that place of condemnation. But you see, theologically speaking, Romans 8.1 says there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Jesus. So don't let the enemy condemn you because there is no condemnation because it is finished. The price for your sins has once for all been paid in totality. And let's not give the enemy too much credit. Don't beat yourselves up because we have a sick propensity toward religiosity. And in some way, we love to have to work it off or make amends or redo or perform better. We love to do that. Why? Well, because then we can say that we did something. But you see, Christianity takes away all that vanity and says we're saved by grace through faith alone and not of works, lest any man should boast. So don't let the enemy beat you up. And don't you build yourself up by thinking, well, I'll just do better next time or I'll do this or that or the other. Just receive the forgiveness of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now, we need to understand something else about Jesus sitting now. And that's the fact that Christ sitting is both spatial and active. Spatial and active. We talked about the fact that he still has a human body glorified as it is. And so the fact that Jesus has a resurrection body that is subject to spatial limitations means that when he ascended, he went somewhere. It's not called the disintegration of Jesus Christ. It's called the ascension of Jesus Christ. And because he was in bodily form, when he ascended, he went somewhere. Now, where did he go? He went into heaven. And because he's in bodily form and he's in heaven, that means that heaven is somewhere. That heaven is a spatial reality. Now the difficulty is that we're not really sure from scripture where heaven is. We don't exactly know, nor can we fully comprehend the reality of heaven, but we do know that when scripture speaks of it, it uses spatial language. It says in Acts 1, and we'll look at the text in a minute, that Jesus was lifted up. He ascended. He went up. We can't see where he is. And it seems that we're unable to see heaven, but because we can't see it, doesn't mean that it is non-existent in the space-time universe. That only speaks of our inability to see and fully comprehend the unseen spiritual realm. Don't think because you don't see it, it doesn't exist. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that there's angels and angels all around us. The Bible teaches that the angels are the observers of the church, it says in the New Testament. When we gather together, when any church gathers together, the angels are there to behold it. Why? Because they just trip out on us. (laughs) Because they know the holiness of God and the wretchedness of men and they just trip out on the fact that we've been brought near. And so when we gather to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ, they're there just going, wow. And we know, and we'll study this in a couple weeks, that they're ministering spirits and warring spirits and they play a role. But my point is this, that was a slight digression. My point is that there's a spiritual realm all around us, which is real, though unseen. Remember Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6.17? There was a battle coming up against Israel and Elisha's servant was all nervous about it and Elisha was just cool as could be. And Elisha prayed, Oh Lord, open his eyes that he could see. 
And the Lord opened Elisha's servant's eyes and he saw the heavenly host in full battle array and in chariots on the hills all around. Those who were coming to the defense of Israel, an angelic army. They were always there. They just weren't beheld by that man until the Lord opened his eyes to see. Same thing with Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7, 55 through 56. It was so kind of the Lord that as Stephen, the first martyr of the church, as he was being stoned to death, a horrific way to be killed, the Lord opened his eyes and he saw Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of majesty. He beheld the heavens opened up to him. So there is an unseen spiritual reality and heaven is a part of this. It's spatial. It's somewhere. It's described as up, though we don't know exactly where. And sometimes people don't see it. In fact, when the first Russian cosmonaut came back from being in outer space, the big thing that he said was, well, I've been to heaven, I've been to the outer space, and I didn't see God, and I didn't see the heaven of the Bible. And of course, Russian society, or at least part of them, rejoiced at that time. Doesn't mean that it wasn't there. Just meant that he was blind to see. Further evidence that heaven is an actual place is seen in Christ's words about the work that he's currently doing there. Look on the PowerPoint at John chapter 14. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it wasn't a place, I would have told you. I would have told you. Oh, for I go to prepare a place for you. Notice that, what Jesus says. He says, I'm going, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Heaven exists in the space, time, universe in some unseen way. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So the Bible is very clear that there is this place called heaven, that it's a literal place, that it's spatial, though it is unseen and not fully comprehended by you and I. So Jesus sitting at the right hand of majesty is a spatial reality. I mean, he's actually literally physically somewhere. Isn't that cool? It's really cool. It's really cool. The second thing that we see is that not only is it spatial, but his place in heaven is also active. It's also active. He's not totally done. He sat down because the immediate work of redemption was finished, but not all of his work is finished. His, his place in heaven is an active one. Now, we could do a whole Bible study on this, but we'll just bring up a couple points. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So the work of redemption was finished, but he also lives to make intercession for you and I. Now that ought to bring comfort to the soul of the Christian. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's praying for us. That's kind of the popular thought about that. We've kind of compartmentalized the word intercession. It means that he's pleading the cause. It means that he's representing. Now why at the second coming does he still bear those wounds? Why after the resurrection were those wounds not gone? I mean certainly we know that when he was resurrected he didn't bear the fullness of his scourging. Remember he was disfigured beyond, re beyond recognition the book of Isaiah says. So his body was restored to some degree and yet there were wounds that remained and remain and will be present at the second coming. Why? Because he ever lives to intercede, to represent, to plead the cause, to make the case that we have been forgiven. He's there in the heavens lest anybody should accuse us. Revelation chapter 12, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Lest anybody should accuse us. He ever lives to intercede and say, no, paid in full. Tetelestai. It is finished. Isn't that wonderful? He is actively bearing before all the universe the wounds of our salvation. 
And though the initial posture is one of sitting to signify the completed work of redemption, we see then that Jesus is still working, not only interceding, but sustaining. Didn't we just study a couple weeks ago that he upholds or sustains all things? So he is currently involved in all of creation. One last interesting point that I want to say about him being seated in the heavenlies. Look at Ephesians 2.6. About Jesus. And raised us up with him. That is to say, God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice what that says. We're familiar with the first part of it, that we've been raised to new life as Jesus was. Romans 6. 2 Corinthians 5, we know that. We've been made new creations, raised to newness of life. The old has passed away. But not only were we raised to new life, but we are already seated with Him, Jesus, in the heavenly places. Why? How is that possible? Because our identity is now in Christ. Our identity is now in Christ. That becomes our core identity. We are in Him. And so however Christ is identified, we're to be identified with Him. And wherever He is, we are positionally with Him. And He is seated in the heavenlies. And so according to the heart and the work and the economy of God, we are already there with Him. Positionally speaking, it's done. It's completed. We are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Now, what you want to do is let the reality of that play out in your daily life. You want to extrapolate that sort of mind-bending thought out into your daily living. Because we know we're here. But positionally, in the completed work of God, we're already there. That means a couple things for us. It means that we can transcend the normal drama of life. We're going to get there. We're already there positionally speaking. It's already done in the heart and mind of God. He says, where are you? You're already here. Hurry up and be done with here because you're already there. (laughs) And so that reality allows us to transcend circumstances, insults, fears, disappointments, rip-offs, It allows us to transcend those things, to not sweat those things, to not allow those things to rule us because we're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. That has a tremendous practical effect upon the way that we live if you'll hold on to that. And furthermore, we need to remember that Jesus, no matter what else happens, he's there and he's on the throne. No matter what else goes down, Jesus is there and he's on the throne. And I don't know about you, but I got to fall back on that sometimes. Sometimes things so don't make sense and all I can say is, he's on the throne. And I take that to the bank. And that begins to author the way that we live today. Now, a couple more points. What does the ascension as a whole, not just the phraseology used in Hebrews 1.3, but what does the ascension as a whole mean for us practically? Very simple, just two things. His ascension means practically for you and I. Number one, a great expectation. And number two, a wonderful opportunity. The ascension of Jesus Christ means a great expectation and a wonderful opportunity. I want us to look at the expectation in Acts chapter 1. Please turn there. Acts chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 1, just get a little context. Luke, the writer here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's referring to the Gospel of Luke. Until the day when he, Jesus, was taken up, the ascension. And he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
In these, he also presented himself alive, or to these rather, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So between the resurrection and the ascension, there were 40 days. 40, significant number in the Bible. Verse 4. In gathering them together, that is the disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the prom- for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but, in other words, here's what you do need to know. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud, that'd probably be the cloud of glory that we studied in previous weeks. The cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while Jesus was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Notice there. That from the account of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the church, the initial church and you and I and the church of believers worldwide have been set on edge by the words of the Lord and the angels. We have been set on edge. We have been called to expect two things in Christianity. We have been called to expect the power of the Holy Spirit and the bodily return of the Messiah. Jesus said, expect it, wait, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then the angel said, why are you just standing around looking up? In the same way that you saw him go, he will come again. So the church is to be in a posture of waiting and expecting. Expecting and waiting for the Holy Spirit and the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said a few things about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And in John 16, verses 7 and 8, it's on the PowerPoint for you, Jesus says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, can you imagine Jesus saying that? The disciples have begun to recognize him for who he is. It's the most wonderful thing the world has ever known, that God has draped himself in humanity, that he's become incarnate, that, that the un created one is walking amongst them, tabernacling with them, walking around on water and raising the dead. And now he says, you know what? It's better for you if I go. You're like, yeah, right. I'm so sure, Jesus. What are you talking about? So whatever happens then subsequent to Jesus going must be incredibly wonderful. Must be incredibly potent. Incredibly important. If Jesus said, it's better for you if I was no longer bodily with you. I tell you the truth, it's your benefit that I go. Rest of the verse of verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper, parakletos in the Greek, the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Look how precious the person of the Holy Spirit is to you and I. Jesus said, it's better that I depart from you bodily that the Holy Spirit, the helper, another helper, he helped us, Jesus did, but another helper, the comforter, the one who comes alongside, that he should come. And when he comes, Jesus said, he will do a great work in the world. Now that becomes important for you and I, as we'll see in a moment when we look at the Great Commission. Jesus also said about the person of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 
Starting verse 26, no, 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Okay, I'm with you now. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace is what I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I'm going away, but don't be afraid. I'm going to leave you with peace and I'm going to send to you the person of the Holy Spirit who will teach you everything that you need to know, who will be with you. He'll bring to remembrance all that I said to you. And then as we saw in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Now in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and everything changes. The whole world changes that day. Especially for those who called themselves by the name of Christ, who were there that day. Once they received the promise that they were waiting for, the promise of the Father, Jesus called it, once they received the Holy Spirit, everything changed in their existence. They now had power. Peter, who previously was too afraid that he knew, to admit that he knew Jesus Christ, in the face of a little slave girl in Luke 22. Slave girl was the lowest in society. You didn't pay her any attention whatsoever. And a little slave girl said, weren't you with Jesus? And he goes, no. I swear I don't know him. I promise I don't know man. And it says that he began to curse and swear, denying Jesus, which means that he said this, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Totally terrified and completely concerned about the world around him, what they thought, and the consequences that he might endure if he followed Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in Acts chapter 2, and fear is gone. And now, when it comes time to preach, he stands up. The one whose mouth was previously used to deny Jesus Christ who wept in bitter sorrow when he did so, he now stands up and preaches Jesus and he says to all those Jews that he was previously so afraid of, you crucified them and you better repent. Something changed. So what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Something changed. And then they got persecuted. Their previous worst fears that they got in trouble for associating with Jesus, it happened. What did they do? They gathered in a room together and they prayed for boldness. They said, Lord, we've been pretty gnarly here in Jerusalem concerning your name and preaching your resurrection. They're starting to come against us. Will you make us even more bold? And then when they arrested and beaten, they went away praising God that they've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They were whipped with a cat of nine tails by Roman soldiers and they went away going, yes, awesome. Thank you, Lord, that we got to suffer for you. Something changed. Jesus had told the church, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus said in the Gospels concerning the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to ask, you need to seek, you need to knock, you need to pursue. Everything is different when the Holy Spirit is functioning in your life. Everything should also be different when we realize that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, that's what the angel said. Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. The angel said, wait for Jesus. In the same way that you saw him go, he's going to come again. Hebrews chapter 9 on the PowerPoint, verse 28. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. He's going to appear a second time and the posture of the church needs to be eagerly awaiting him. I want us to turn to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians. You'll remember that in the New Testament, all the T's are together. So find a T and you'll be near to Thessalonians. Thessalonians, just before Timothy, just after Colossians.
Now let me just say this. Preferatory remarks. It's very clear that the Bible teaches of the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is no way to escape that. The the Bible speaks more frequently about his second coming than it did his first coming. And his first coming was a historical reality. Therefore, by scripture, by logic, we can expect him to come again. It's more sure than even the first coming that is a historical fact. He is absolutely coming again. Now, a part of that coming includes the rapture of the church. Buzzword there within the church. The rapture of the church. That is where the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now, we know that the rapture is a separate event from the physical second coming of Jesus to earth because it has different characteristics. In the rapture, the church is pictured as going up to meet Jesus in the clouds. In the second coming in such places as Matthew 24, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, the church is pictured coming with Jesus to the earth. So there are descriptions of the church going up to meet Jesus in the sky and descriptions of the church coming with Jesus from the sky to earth to establish the kingdom in its fullness. So we know then, and there's many more than that, but we know for sure that the rapture is a separate event than the second coming. Now, when it happens prior to the second coming is the question that we like to talk about. Is it pre-trib before the tribulation period? Is it mid-trib in the middle of the tribulation before the great part of the tribulation? Is it post-tribulation just before his second coming? This is a debate within the church. And it's fine for us to debate that. That's an in-house debate. It's not okay for us to divide on that issue. But it's fine for us to debate that issue. I'm a pre-tribber. Hardcore, Bible-thumping, pre-tribber. I believe that we're going to go before the tribulation for about 9 million reasons that we've spoken about before. But I don't care when you think the rapture is going to happen. We're all going to go eventually and we'll be looking at each other saying, Oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) The reason I give those preparatory remarks is because we're going to look at a passage right now that is a rapture passage. It's speaking about the rapture. And it has to do with the imminent, could happen at any moment, return of Jesus Christ for the church. And it has a radical effect. The fact that it could happen at any moment has a radical effect upon the way that we live. This is a wonderful passage. One of the, it's wonderful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Paul writes and says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Asleep was a first century euphemism that Christians used for other Christians who had died. They, they believed in the resurrection from the dead, so they didn't really feel that it was right to call them dead. And so they would say, oh, that brother is sleeping. It meant he was dead. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Okay, so he's going to give them hope here. Hope about those who have died. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is a wonderful truth. That is a glorious thing spoken of in Scripture. That there will come a day... Now, a primary doctrine concerning the rapture of the church is that it's imminent, meaning there's nothing that has to happen before it happens. It could happen at any moment. The angel meant to... The two angels meant to set the church on edge when they said, the same way that you saw him go, he's going to come. Be vigilant. Be aware. Be alert. He's coming again. And there'll come a time where there is the shout of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who were born again that already died shall be resurrected in their new bodies. 
Just as Jesus was resurrected from the grave, resurrected in the resurrection bodies, we who are still alive at that time and remain, we shall be transformed. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a twinkling of an eye, we will receive our resurrection bodies and we will be what? Caught up. Caught up. Harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin, raptured in the English. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, the book of Titus calls the rapture of the church the blessed hope. The blessed hope. Something that once again we could take to the bank. No matter how bad things get, no matter how scary things get, the Lord is on the throne and He is coming again. I'm not talking about escapism, which we are often accused of. Oh, you just want to escape all the difficulties of the world. Hey, brother. Yeah. (laughs) But my hope is not in escapism. My hope is in being with Jesus. And he's coming for the bride. And so the bride needs to be adorned. No bride on the wedding day says, I wasn't ready. (laughs) I didn't know. I wasn't ready for you. I didn't know you'd be here at the altar already. No bride does that. Every bride is ready way before the groom. Hours. I've done hundreds of weddings. Hours before the groom. The bride is ready. That is the language of Scripture. Why do you think that is so? It is the language of Scripture that the bride be ready. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are to be ready for Him. Living in absolute expectancy for His return. 1 John, if you want to flip over there real quick, if not, I'll read it to you, but 1 John, toward the end of your Bible, says in chapter 2, verse 28, 1 John 2, 28, says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Stay connected to Jesus. Abide in Him. Be walking in the Spirit so that when He comes, we're saying yes and amen. Praise the Lord. Not, "Uh uh-oh, got caught with my hand in the cookie jar. That's the way that we're supposed to live. Verse 29, if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Christ is pure. By the command of the Lord, the angels purposely set the church on edge in an attitude of expectation. In an attitude of expectation. Because it could come for us at any moment. Now, I have much more to the lesson, but I'm going to finish right here. I want us to just dwell on that. We'll do part two next week. How do you live today if the Lord might come tonight? What changes? What goes? How do you then endeavor to purify yourself even as he is pure, if he might be coming at any time? How then does that reorganize the priorities of your life? How does that make certain things seem incredibly superfluous all of a sudden? This thing that was so high and mighty and you had to have and you're pursuing after it. What does it really mean now in light of the fact that Jesus Christ might come at any time? Those that you know and you love, and this will be the topic of our sermon next week that do not yet know Jesus Christ, how will you deal differently with them if the Lord might come tomorrow? How does the tone and the tenor of living change? 
What's different? If we're waiting and expecting. The ascension of Jesus Christ means that the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, is waiting and expecting. Actively purifying ourselves, pursuing holiness, his will, righteousness, his glory, his kingdom. Busy about his business while waiting for his return. I want us to go into a meditative moment. And we're just going to let the Holy Spirit minister to us about what changes now in light of the fact that the Lord may come at any moment. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful truth of the word. And right now, Holy Spirit, we need you to help us because we don't always see real clearly. We're not always able to discern our own motives, our own agendas, where things are out of alignment. We're not always real clear. So Holy Spirit, come now. Holy Spirit, come. And shed some light on our lives. Because we want to be more like Jesus. We want more of Him in our lives. We want to be more useful in His hands. We want to experience more of who He is. So Holy Spirit, come and deal with us. Wonderfully, gently, beautifully, powerfully, unmistakably as you do. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us about pursuits, agendas, bitternesses that we've had for so long and the Lord is coming and get over it. These sorts of things. Come Holy Spirit. Do a work in our lives. Prayer team is going to be up here to your left to help you. These are big life change moments. A lot of times we really need help in prayer. They want to help you. If you're having trouble hearing the Lord in your seat, come up here and get on your face. Communion is here to help you proclaim his death until he comes. Let's press in and see what he would say to us.